All right, that is all in on this Tuesday night. Alex Wagner tonight starts right now. Good evening, Alex. Now, good evening, Alex. Very deft pivot. I'm not a senator. Okay, Ron Klain. Yeah. Uh, and yet, he did refocus on something that needs to be focused on. Uh, thank you, my friend, as always. You bet. And thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. For most of his life, Donald Trump has sold himself as a successful businessman. He did it first as a minor New York celebrity, and then as a reality TV host, and then, however improbably, as a candidate for president of the United States. Trump's main asset, his selling point, if you will, the reason we were all supposed to take him seriously, was he was the successful leader of the real estate empire that bears his name. But today, a judge in New York found that Trump's business empire has been built in part on rampant fraud. And the judge ordered the dissolution of Trump's businesses in the state of New York. Here's what he wrote. Ordered that any certificates filed by any of the entity defendants or by any other entity controlled or beneficially owned by Donald J. Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg, and Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConaughey are canceled. To put that in layman's terms, for now, the Trump Organization effectively has an out-of-order sign hanging on it, at least in terms of its businesses in New York State, which, again, in this moment, at this hour, is a fairly staggering development for the man whose entire reputation was built on his alleged business acumen. It is also not all that this judge has decided. Because of this order, several of the crown jewels in Trump's real estate empire, the properties upon which he built his brand, those properties are now in limbo. The precise impact of today's rulings, ruling has yet to be seen, but Trump could lose control of properties including Trump Park Avenue, which is his luxury skyscraper in Manhattan's Lenox Hill neighborhood. He could lose control of 40 Wall Street, the historic tower Trump owns in the financial district. He could lose control of his Seven Springs Golf Club in Bedford, New York. Even his apartment in Trump Tower, the gilded bunker in which he has sought refuge in his home city, Trump could lose control of that. Maybe even the golden toilet, too. So today's ruling was not good for Mr. Trump and his defense team. And the judge here, Judge Arthur Engeron, made very clear what he thought of the defense. Also, again, as part of his ruling, the judge accused the defense of living in a fantasy world, not the real world. He accused the defense of obstreperous conduct and reliance on bogus arguments and intentional and blatant disregard of controlling authority and law of the case. He admonished Trump's legal team in no uncertain terms and wrote, sophisticated counsel should have known better. So again, not a great day for the Trump defense on this one. Trump's team announced tonight that they plan to appeal this ruling. But for now, all of this looks like pretty good news for New York Attorney General Letitia James, whose case against the Trump organization is expected to officially go to trial on Monday, which is six days from today. And Judge Engeron, the same judge who just accused Trump's team of living in a fantasy world, he will be the presiding judge in that case. Out of that trial, we are likely to find out the fate of Trump's empire, whether he will lose control of his numerous properties, and whether he and his sons will ever be allowed to do business in New York State again. Joining me now 
Our Laura Jarrett, senior legal correspondent for NBC News and investigative journalist Suzanne Craig, one of the lead reporters in the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning investigation into Trump's finances. Sue, Laura, there, I'm so thrilled to have you help me understand. <laughs> I read this. I read this ruling and I've gotten slightly better at understanding. This one was tough for me. I'm not going to lie. Laura, I understood this to be a fairly devastating rebuke for Trump's defense. Is that how you're reading it? I think the plain language, uh, the scathing language, in particular, the judge seems angry that his words weren't taken seriously over and over again, essentially telling them, I warned you about these arguments last time, and yet you continued to make them. They're borderline frivolous, so much so that he has ordered sanctions against the lawyers. Yes. This is not something you see often, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the, the judge is clearly so angry about what he calls glaring misrepresentations. That's an embarrassing thing to receive as an attorney. You, do, you never want to have that associated with your name. Uh, but and the, fines of, I think, $7,500. Against each right? of the people who signed on to the briefs that he said were borderline frivolous. Yeah. Um, I think the question mark, I think, for, for what Susan and I have been talking <laughs> about is what is the practical implication yes. of yeah. having a business cancel? But for all intents and purposes, the judge that is going to be trying this case mm-hmm. clearly has strong feelings yes, here, about the defendants and their arguments, which does not bode well for what is supposed to go to trial on Monday, what's right. left of this case. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Trump's defense, I'm not excited about Monday, given that this is what we got from the judge today. But it's a. It's not a jury trial, by the way. It's from the bench. Right. So the guy who handed this down today, the judge. He's the decider. Monday morning, he's there to decide the rest. How How are you? I mean, there are a lot of questions. The, the wording there about in our script, as I read that, is very careful. It's for now. It's kind of an out of order sign hanging over a the Trump board. And I want to be careful about that because yeah. there's going to immediately be appeal. So right. that's the first one. Of course, he's going to appeal it. But there's going to be a, a receiver put in. And so a receiver to control. Right. The so it's, so it's, Is that right? Right. And, and it's going to be in the interest of, I think, in the short term for those properties to do well, we're not going to all of a sudden see an immediate sale or anything like that. And I think there's going to be, if there is a sale, if that's what results, it's going to be a very controlled sale because potentially the proceeds of the sale of, say, the commercial area of Trump Tower or Seven Springs, the estate that he owns or one of the golf courses, could go as disgorgement to pay whatever fine ultimately happens at the end of the court case. Can we just talk about that for a second? Um, Disgorgement, I got caught up in that. Um, (laughs) But effectively, Letitia James is calling for $250 million. A lot of money. A lot of money. There's a huge question about how liquid Trump is at this stage and whether, to your point, he may need to sell off some of these properties. Is that right? If, if in fact, the judge rules in favor of Letitia James. Well, I think, I think if the dollars. end of it and we keep rolling and there's appeals, we, we, we could very well see a sale of some of his New York assets that potentially could go um, to pay for the fine, to pay the fine. And, and in the interim... Which is a huge fine for him. A I mean, massive it's, fine. It's a massive fine. It's not tax deductible. And, you know, he's, it's, it's not a good... He can't write it down. Right. And we're not, we're not heading towards a moment now where, oh, that fine won't be 250 It might be 100 We have, you know, this was devastating today. He was, he was found liable on the, on the fraud stuff. That was the main charge. There's going to be some other the trial likely will start Monday. There's one more legal maneuver coming this week, but we would expect it to go ahead Monday. And and there's going to be other um, things that are going to be adjudicated. But the main one was that fraud charge, and that's done. Um, To the question of what practically happens to the businesses, Laura, 
it seems like a real, very real possibility that the Trumps will not be allowed to do business in the state of New York ever again. Well, yeah. And yeah. Are we, how are you reading this sort of tea leaves in this as it pertains to that ultimate question? Well, I think that's part of why this was always sort of the wild card case for the business and the family. And there's been obviously so much focus on the four criminal indictments. And for good reason. There are criminal cases. This is a civil case. This is not about jail time. But it is about the business, the reputation, the family's stake and interest in something that clearly was important to them. And look, if you're a lender reading this, yes. is this a business that you want to engage with anymore? And perhaps they already had reputational risk. And their point all along is, look, you should have done your own due diligence. You shouldn't have relied on our statements of financial condition. You should have dug in for yourself. But truly, if you're a lender looking at this, is this a business that you want to engage with? Well, let's talk about the statements of financial condition, because all along, this is the juicy part of the discussion, but it truly is. This is a, a, the thing upon which so much of Trump's defense, defense rests here, which is his statements of financial condition. They're not independently audited. They're meaningless. And the judge today ripped that argument apart. I think he says defendants reliance on these worthless disclaimers is in and of itself, worthless. It, it was incredible because the, the hearing for, for what came today was on Friday, and I was there for it. And just to hear Trump's lawyers at the beginning, actually, both sides sort of felt like they, they started with the phrase, we've, we feel like we've walked through the looking glass. Like it was really a, um, just like a house of mirrors, like the way they, they were just going through all their reasons why these financial statements were, were worthless. They were caveats on them. Um, well, there's just a lot of variation. Well, the banks do their own due diligence themselves. And so they submitted all these, these documents knowing, you know, that they were, they, these weren't just a little bit off. This was something that he, you know, is maybe worth 20 million. He said it's worth 150 million. And at one point the judge, and maybe we all should have seen this coming, coming. today, the judge, and I, I've written it. I don't, I don't even want to paraphrase. It was so good. He, he was so angry. He started pounding on his desk and, and looking at the Trump lawyers. And he said, you cannot make false statements and use them in business. That's what the statute prohibits. And he was just furious. He was, was just like, shut up. There was no gray area for him. No. And he was he was really angry about it because they were they had all these excuses for why these financial statements were essentially worthless. You know, I think the main one being that the banks do their own due diligence. Right. Well, you still submitted them as a as a document to a financial institution and in other cases, insurance companies. There is, there are rules about that. And, and well, that's what the judge was saying. And that port, furious. portends very poorly for what else needs to be resolved in this trial on Monday, right, Laura? Well, and it's yeah. part of why, again, the fact that it's a civil case makes a difference here. The bar is lower. The judge makes it clear intent is not required. Right. Materiality, meaning it actually mattered to the party. And so the question is, well, if the, bender, the lenders and the banks weren't upset, they didn't sue, they didn't have any damage, the judge says none of that actually matters for purposes of just the plain vanilla fraud case. Yeah. You don't need any of that. Now, he may need it for some of the other claims that are actually going to trial on Monday. But as for just that, all you needed was that there were false representations. And that's it. It's a great point, because in this case, you know, you think of a, a normal trial who are, you know, the victims, the banks in this case, the loans actually performed. Right. So they're not, you know, the, the that was the case that Trump you, was making. Right. Nobody right, lost any money. Right, What's the right, problem they here? All did well. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And that, yeah, it shut down by the judge. Right. I, I would, I would ask, um, Laura, there, there are outstanding appellate issues here, right? I mean, can you talk a little bit about 
the, the sort of parallel avenue that Trump is pursuing well, to get out and, of this. And sure. And that's their right. And they can try to appeal this one. And who's to say, you know, what a panel will do. They've tried another avenue to try to go after the judge personally. They're, they're to, suing and, and they're suing him. We'll, we'll see how that turns out. But it doesn't look like it's working so well as a strategy thus far. Well, as, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this is all speed to go on Monday. It, even it feels that way. That. Yeah. The, the, Donald, so Donald Trump is suing the judge, and he did this before Friday's yes. hearing on this. So he he knew, I think. He anticipated. I don't know if he anticipated this. He anticipated something. Mm-hmm. Wasn't going to go his way. And now the appellate court and the main, you know, he's asking for the thing, one of it was just simply more time. The, the time was limited at the appellate court in terms of what cases could potentially be looked at, the time frame and what fell where. I don't see the appellate court now. I, I'm very, I hate making predictions. And probably not We love it way. when you make predictions. I know. I'm very careful. But, uh, you know, I don't see that this is going to get moved. Unless I, you get yeah. a stay, this is going forward. Yeah. Suing the judge personally in light of the, the, the ruling that was just handed down just all seems like, I mean, I don't know, legally, but just politically speaking, in terms of a clash of personality is not a wise move given the judge is going to be ruling from the bench. I, don't, I think day. he had nothing. He knew that this was, I, I think he had, he knew that he had not really not much to lose in terms of, I don't think it would have made much of a difference. Like, I think he knew something was coming and he wants, he wants the appellate court to rule on whether the judge should be removed. Um, yeah. I, I will ask you, Sue, because you followed this case so exhaustively for years now. Is this the, I mean, is this could this be the the sort of finale for the Trump organization that we're looking at right here? I told you I was bad at prediction. I mean, I just said could. <laughs> I didn't say will. You know, I, I, think I mean, given the gravity of what's at stake here. It's, I'm going to say, first of all, obviously, stating the obvious, it's not good. You know, I walked, I, I left work and I walked here from the New York Times about 15 minutes. You don't, when you come over here, pass any buildings that have Trump's name on it. He does have significant assets here. A lot of his business is conducted outside of the state. And I think that's important. His business includes largely golf courses elsewhere in the country um, and other, you know, properties. But it's not, it's, I I don't know if the majority is out, but I would say the majority of it is not in in, in New New York. York. And so he still has assets that he can sell to, if if there is a fine that comes from this. Um, He's also, you know, I think smartly from his point of view, switched his lending. Um, So his lenders were anticipating this and his loans have been moved to institutions where this is baked in. Um, So I don't know. I think and I think we're also and this is, again, just something with Donald Trump. We are a long way from the end. I'm going to be sitting here again in front of you talking about this. Yes, we know the appeals. There's going to be a lot. Yes. And and for now, receivers going to come in and they're going to be stewards of these properties may one day be sold. But I think we're a long way from that. I think it's just important. People know that it's a big headline today, but this is still not. It is perhaps the end of one chapter (laughs) in a longer saga. And I thank you for being narrators through all of this, (laughs) my friends, Laura Jarrett and Sue Craig. Great to see you guys. Thank you for your wisdom and thoughts. We have much more still ahead this evening, including the ex-president's latest legal brief, claiming that he has not intimidated anyone as he threatens prosecutors and flirts with buying a gun. That is still ahead, but first. Why won't you resign, sir? Senator Mendes. Because I'm innocent. What's wrong with you guys? Why were there gold bars there? Why were there gold bars there? At least 24 senators are now calling for their colleague from New Jersey to resign. Michelle Goldberg is here on that, coming up next.
Will you run for re-election, sir? As I said, I'm here to do the work of the people of Jersey. Why won't you resign, sir? Senator Manning. Because I'm innocent. What's wrong with you guys? Why were there gold bars there? Democratic Senator Bob Menendez tried to get the elevator doors closed as quickly as possible today, telling reporters he will not be resigning, even though he faces federal bribery charges, including allegations that he used his position as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to aid the government of Egypt. In return, the indictment alleges Senator Menendez received gifts, including cash and gold bars, as in bars of gold. As of today, at least 24 Democratic senators have called for Menendez to step down, including Cory Booker, the junior senator from New Jersey, who has long been a close friend of Menendez and even appeared as a character witness for him in 2017 when Senator Menendez first faced unrelated corruption charges. Menendez and his co-defendants, including his wife Nadine Menendez, are scheduled to make an appearance in court tomorrow for their arraignment. Joining me now is New York Times columnist and MSNBC contributor Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, it is always good to see you. I know you have a new piece in The Times today calling on Senate leadership to force Menendez to step down. And I kind of wonder at this point what you think the calculation is for Senate, Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, and why he has not called and ensured Menendez's ouster. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I've called on him to demand that Menendez resign. I'm not sure that he can force Menendez to resign, which may in fact be part of his calculation. It's, you know, if he's trying to ease him out behind the scenes, maybe it's better for him to hold his fire. And I think that's understandable. And I'm really heartened that, you know, just from the time I started writing that piece, when it was like three or four senators who had called for Menendez to resign, it's now close to half the caucus, but it should really be all of the caucus. I mean, this is such a black and white issue. And yes, you have the right to a fair trial, but you do not have the right to a seat in the United States Senate when you cannot answer for such deeply incriminating evidence against you. And the answers that he's given at that you know really defiant press conference are just so laughable. Yeah. And I want to talk about those answers in a second, because those have their own sort of long tail in a way as well, politically speaking. And I, I, you know, I think a lot of people understand the point you're making in terms of public trust, right, is not a given. And once you lose it, you don't get to be a U.S. senator. At the same time, there's a clear political dimension to all of this as well. And I and I know on one hand, the the calls on the part of Democrats, though not all of them, to get Menendez to leave sort of and, and, and in fact, the federal investigation itself give um, reveal the Republican assertions that the DOJ is somehow rigged against Republicans to be it reveals that to be patently false. Right. Here's a federal investigation of mm-hmm. a sitting Democratic U.S. senator. That is a good thing, I think, for Democrats. On the other hand, the fact that he's still in the Senate undermines the sort of larger Democratic ire and anger directed at President Trump, former President Trump, for his um, misdeeds, shall we say, at this point. And I wonder which you think is the more potent narrative at this moment, the the rigging of one institution or the idea that Trump and the focus, the focus must be on Trump at all times. Well, I think that the way to keep the focus on Trump is for the Democratic Party to be united in repudiating Menendez, because that, I think, is the real difference between the parties. You know, I I do think that there's more corruption on the Republican Party, but the Republican Party doesn't have a monopoly on corruption. The real difference is, or at least should be, how the two parties 
handle corruption, you know, so presumably if, say, a Democratic presidential candidate was found guilty of fraud and had his companies threatened with dissolution, that would, you would think, count against him in a Democratic primary. Or similarly, you would think that it can't, that somebody like George Santos um, would not be allowed to stay on the Democratic side. And we're going to see if that's true with Menendez. And there's also another thing that I think that's happening that's very interesting, which is that on the one hand, you have, you know, more and more Democrats, although not as many as I think we should see, calling for Menendez to resign. At the same time, you're starting to see Republicans calling on him not to resign. And there's two pieces there, right? On the one hand, they understand, I think, that Menendez is now a burden to the Democrats and is just, you know, kind of a political liability for them as long as he stays in the Senate. But it also seems that the Republican Party is increasingly committed to the principle that a mere indictment on serious crimes should not preclude you serving in the United States government. Strange bedfellows, right? Um, Now the Republicans are coming to Bob Menendez's aid. I do have to ask you, though, because you highlight this in your piece, the, the sort of excuses that Menendez or the reasons Menendez gives for his targeting and he, I'll read an excerpt from your, your story. Menendez insisted he's staying in the Senate and offered a preposterous excuse for the hundreds of thousands of dollars the FBI agents found at his house. He said he kept it for emergencies because the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. He also claimed to be the victim of racist persecution by those who simply cannot accept that a first-generation Latino American from humble beginnings could rise to be a U.S. senator. A deployment of identity politics so audaciously cynical, it belongs in a caustic TV farce. I mean, it is audaciously cynical, and it also, I think, inflicts real harm on public figures who are the victim of of, oh, yeah. of racist targeting, right? It, it renders right, it in some ways I mean, meaningless. It makes a mockery of it. Yes. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it absolutely makes a mockery of it because, of course, racist targeting is real. The idea that racist targeting is the reason that Bob Menendez has been indicted again, you know, what, and the reason that he's been found by the FBI to have his, you know, gold bars and hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash you know, stashed in his house, the idea that he can now kind of plead identity politics. Yeah, it's so deeply cynical. And I think, you know, again, shows that he really has nothing, right? If he had even, you know, not even an explanation, but the ghost of a rationale, we would have heard it by now. And I'll just say, as someone whose family fled a country and felt targeted and were seeking refuge in the United States, there were no gold bars Anywhere ever in my family house, as far as I as I knew, I'm not a U.S. senator, though. Michelle Goldberg, thank you for making the time, my friend. Thank you. Still ahead. Donald Trump's lawyers are arguing in court that he has never intimidated anyone. The former president's record, however, suggests otherwise. But first, Union Joe walked the picket line in Michigan today. The state's senior senator, Debbie Stabenow, joins me live right after this quick break. President Biden made history in Michigan today when he became the first sitting president in modern history to walk a picket line. Biden addressed members of the United Auto Workers who are striking against the big three automakers outside a General Motors plant near Detroit. You 
saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and before. Made a lot of sacrifices, gave up a lot, and the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well too. You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. President Biden's decision here to join the auto workers at a picket line could have far-reaching consequences not only for the labor movement in this country, but for 2024 presidential politics as well. Michigan is an important swing state, and auto workers represent a slice of the electorate that remains key to both parties. By way of evidence, Donald Trump will be in Michigan tomorrow at an event billed as an address to auto workers instead of attending the second Republican presidential primary debate. Joining me now is Michigan's Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow. Senator Stabenow, it's so great to have you here tonight. I I would love to get your thoughts on the sort of political peril this moment represents for, for both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, I, I spoke with the White House press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, last week and asked her explicitly if President Biden would walk the picket line. And I did not get a response. I wonder if you have been advising the White House that President Biden needed to go to the state and and what you sort of think about how he is handling this moment. Well, Alex, first of all, it's really great to be with you. I I love your show. And I have to say that President Biden was in his element today. Anytime he's with working men and women, you know, he he deeply connects with people. And I've been one of the folks that uh, has urged him to come, assuming that this is something that the UAW wants. And the UAW president, um, Sean Payne, has indicated that the president had a standing invitation. So um, I think it was great that he was there. Uh, we know it's historic. But what I think is also historic is that we've got a manufacturing renaissance going on in this country right now, over 800,000 new manufacturing jobs. And so what the strike is about is making sure that these are good paying jobs, that people are getting their fair share. I want the, the whole auto industry to do well. But They can't do well unless the workers are doing well. And then you mentioned Donald Trump. I just have to say, uh, it's unbelievable to me. He comes in, says he wants to talk to the workers. He goes to a non-union facility. And now it looks like he's being backed by uh, all the folks who are anti-labor, all the groups that are anti-labor, anti-unions right now. And he's going to speak. And so, I mean, bring it on. You know, this is a guy who said that, we should let the autos go bankrupt. I was deeply involved in leading that auto rescue. He said, let them go bankrupt. And then later on, he actually said that instead of going to Mexico, why don't the company just move from Michigan with union labor and go to the South with non-union labor? And then they could cut their costs. And we've got, I mean, so many things he said over the years and, and actions he took. It that showed he was anti-labor, and he's the only president in our lifetime that left as president with fewer jobs in our country than when he started. And right now, in addition to manufacturing, we've got 13.5 million new jobs and counting in our country. So I think it's great. Let Donald Trump come into Michigan. Yeah, I I, got to follow up on that because Trump's record on, you know, union labor is abysmal. The fact fact that he's going to a non-union plant tomorrow (laughs) tells you the story of all of it. Right. He appoints Eugene Scalia as his labor secretary. He makes it harder for union workers to organize. And yet, Senator, 
he still has support from the rank and file. I mean, I think it's Sean Fein estimates that I think a third of the rank and file may be supporting Trump in 2024. And the fact is, in 2020, exit polls show 56 percent of UAW uh, uh, households voted for Biden, but 40 percent back Trump. To me, that says it's not actually about policy. It's about some sort of sociocultural feeling that they get from each candidate. And I, I would love to know from your perspective right. why Trump has this sticking power with, with you know, blue-collar, white voters, especially men, especially non-college educated men. Well, Alex, I would have to say, despite these early polls that are all over the place right now, and I think we ought to wad them up and throw them away, that what I see is a, a, a lessening um, of his grip. But when it's true, I mean, in Michigan, any labor union, we're going to have people that are Democrats, people who are Republicans, more Democrats than Republicans. But when you talk about one third of the UAW supporting Trump, that means two thirds are supporting Joe Biden. And so, I mean, that's about the ratio that we see all the time. Uh, and Michigan, frankly, is a purple state. We have been so excited and, and done so much organizing in recent years that we have beat the odds in 2020 with President Biden getting more votes in a presidential year uh, than any other time. 22, we beat the odds on more votes, more people coming out to vote than at any time uh, before in a non-presidential year. But I can assure you, we have to work hard all the time. And we've got to tell the story. And it is very difficult. It seems like it's always easy to, you know, get attention for bad news. And we have a lot of good news to tell. Yep. And it, it, we just have to keep telling it. Rebuilding America, bringing jobs home, lifting people up. You know, Donald Trump actually cut the overtime pay rules, cut overtime pay when he was in. President Biden in August just raised overtime pay. I mean, we can go point by point, and it's really our job, everybody's job, to tell the story. No more top-down, no more trickle-down. It's right aiming it at the middle class, growing the middle class, bringing down costs, taking on the drug companies, <laughs> taking on big oil. So I could go on, I, you know, I'm sure, I, you know, I could go on and on because <laughs> there is so much to tell. You're, and uh, I, I think we need to tell it. I would please come back on the show. Nobody is a better interlocutor for, for all of the, the things that have been done by the Democratic president. I think starting on the picket line is a good place to get everybody to focus. Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, Absolutely. thank you so much for your time and thoughts tonight. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Still ahead this evening, the symbolism behind Trump's choice of campaign stop in South Carolina amid the threat of violence against his detractors. That is next. There is Big Bucks Gun and Pawn. There is Holy City Firearms, or probably the best name of the bunch. There is Ammo Dump. There are a lot of options when it comes to gun shops in and around Somerville, South Carolina. So why did former President Trump choose this one? Yesterday, before speaking at a campaign rally in South Carolina, Trump made a pit stop for a tour and a photo op at a gun shop called the Palmetto State Armory. Now, this is a photo of one of the guns a white gunman used a month ago today in Jacksonville, Florida, to kill three black people in a Dollar General in a predominantly black neighborhood. The gunman, who f fatally shot himself after that attack, he left behind a racist manifesto. 
as the Jacksonville sheriff said, this shooting was racially motivated and he hated black people. This is a closer picture of the gun that shooter used a month ago today. And above the hand-painted swastika, you can see the logo, Palmetto State Armory. It was headline news that at least one of the shooter's guns came from the Palmetto State Armory. Now, to be clear, Palmetto State Armory is a South Carolina chain, and there are lots of locations. But also, there are lots of gun stores to choose from in that town, minutes away from one another. And so it feels like a choice that exactly a month later, Donald Trump chose this particular shop for his photo op. That is not the only thing this particular gun shop is known for. In 2009, South Carolina Republican Joe Wilson shouted, you lie, at President Obama during a congressional address. And that was celebrated on the right. And Palmetto State Armory had its first big national news moment by commemorating Wilson's outburst on a custom-engraved AR-15 accessory. More recently, Palmetto State Armory has made news for marketing its product toward the anti-government group The Boogaloo Boys. Boogaloo is a predominantly white ring, white right, white right-wing accelerationist, accelerationist movement whose members say they want a violent second civil war against the federal government. You might know the Boogaloo Boys from their signature combination of Hawaiian shirts and military gear. It is not on sale anymore, but in 2020, the Palmetto State Armory sold this gun in a Hawaiian shirt print called the Big Igloo Aloha. Big Igloo Aloha, which sounds a lot like Boogaloo. Big Igloo Aloha. Palmetto State Armory didn't respond to requests for comments by The Trace, an outlet that covers gun violence, when The Trace began reporting on this sort of merchandise in 2020. But given all of that, it feels very pointed that President Trump, former President Trump, picked this particular gun shop just yesterday. It maybe even feels like Trump was sending a message, and it is not the first time. Last night, Trump's lawyers filed their opposition to special counsel Jack Smith's request for a gag order in a federal election interference case. Smith had asked the judge to restrict Trump's speech outside of court to prevent Trump from intimidating witnesses or influencing potential jurors. In response, Trump's lawyers argued President Trump has not intimidated anyone. They essentially said that because Jack Smith's team didn't directly tie Trump to any specific act of intimidation, he can't be penalized for it. But that is exactly how Trump operates. As his former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, put it years ago, Trump speaks in code. Trump didn't have to tell the Proud Boys to come to the Capitol armed on January 6th. He just told them to stand back and stand by and that January 6th would be wild. Trump didn't have to tell his followers to break into the Capitol on January 6th and try to attack his vice president, Mike Pence. He just told them to, to march. And he called the vice president a coward and then sat silently while his supporters chanted that they wanted to hang Mike Pence. Trump tacitly encouraged violence against his own vice president. And Mike Pence is far from an outlier here. Since the 2020 election, more than a dozen people have been charged with threatening election workers because of Trump's big lie. Individual election workers that Trump singled out, like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, face threats of violence for just doing their jobs. 
Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson had armed protesters show up at her home because of Trump's lies about the election. After Trump demonized the FBI for searching Mar-a-Lago, a supporter of Trump's tried to attack the FBI Cincinnati field office with a nail gun. Even the National Archives has been flooded with threats because Trump demonized the institution last year. And the list goes on. President Trump's followers have shown repeatedly that Trump can send even subtle messages and they hear a call to violence loud and clear. Former DeKalb County District Attorney Gwen Keyes joins us next to talk about what the judge here can do about all of this and what it is like to be a public figure on the receiving end of this sort of vitriol. When Donald Trump was criminally indicted the first time, he started calling that prosecutor and other black prosecutors investigating him racist. Days before Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis indicted Trump and 18 others, Trump accused her of having an affair with a gang member. Hours after she filed that RICO indictment, Trump used the word rigor to complain about the charges. Those racially charged attacks do not go unnoticed by Trump supporters. New York prosecutors who charged Trump have received death threats. D.A. Willis has shared the racist, sexist threats she's received. The judge overseeing Trump's federal election case has faced racial slurs and death threats as well. And in the meantime, Trump has reacted to all of this by saying, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. And yet, in a filing late last night, Trump's defense team in his federal election interference case, interference case argued that the judge should not impose a gag order on Trump because President Trump has not intimidated anyone. Joining me now is Gwen Keyes, former district attorney for DeKalb County in Georgia. Gwen, it's great to see you in person. Thank you. There's so many reasons why I want to talk to you about this. But first, just from a legal perspective, does the, ar- does the argument the defense is putting forward here, Donald Trump has not in- intimidated anyone, does that hold water? I mean, it is, it is, in their mind, because there's no direct example, it's a fantasy. Well, I think the judge here is going to look at the context. Again, these are not statements that are in a vacuum. We have the history of January 6th. The judge sees uh, what's been done there. And again, even though that she has had threats against her, I think she is going to be able to look at the facts and weed through all of the the garbage and come up with a decision that is going to be able to protect not just the individuals in the court system, but the integrity yeah. of the court system. Let's remember, that is a critical part of our democracy. And so when you attack prosecutors or suggest that their decisions are made for things other than facts and the law, uh, that really begins to undermine some of the basic principles of this country. I mean, I just wonder what punitive measures can be put in place, right? Because he is someone who acts often in open defiance of the law and institutions. And, you know, one of the most effective measures she she has suggested is to move up the trial date. But that seems, I mean, we got a March trial date. How much more can you move it up? And if you don't actually punish Trump for the bad behavior, for the intimidating behavior, then does that not make a mockery of the institution as well? Correct. So I think what, I think she may be, um, actually follow through on her threat to move things up. Again, this is a matter of, sh- of shortening the window within which these kinds of statements can be made. And when you do that, you ultimately 
protect people and have the case move faster. We'll actually see whether that's what she does. Uh, but th the other things that, that would apply with any other defendant is revoking the bond. Right. And having someone stay in custody. I realize that's a bit of a challenge when you have a former president, but that's how any other defendant would be handled. There's another aspect to this aside from the legal, which is the social, emotional, racial component to all of this. There are the attacks Trump makes on prosecutors and detractors writ large. But then there are a very specific brand of attack and focused attack on women of color, especially women of color who are prosecutors, whether it is Letitia James, who is attacking on social media this evening, whether it is Fonnie Willis, whether it is Judge Chutkin. There is a specific brand of Trump vitriol dedicated to these kind of women, these women, women of color who are often involved in law and holding him accountable. Um, what do you make of that? And what does that portend for women of color who are who are in law, who are watching this unfold? Well, it's a sad state of affairs, right? But many of us who have been prosecutors or are prosecutors sadly realize that that unfortunately is part of the job. And so now we work even more diligently to protect ourselves, to protect our families, but we shouldn't have to do that. When we have put ourselves forward to be able to take an oath and serve the public in a way uh, that maintains, again, a, a critical pillar of our democracy. So it's a sad state that uh, folks who are committed to service are being treated this way. Uh, but again, I, I have it on good authority that many of them are receiving protection from both the state in law enforcement as well as federal law enforcement. I think it's really telling, too, that faced with this legal peril, he's resorting to not subtle racial uh, the suggestion of of racism and fomenting sort of racial tension, if not not outright racial attacks on, on people of color like that. that it, it is very it is very enlightening to me that that is the recourse that Donald Trump has chosen in this moment. When you, I know that you worked with Fonnie Willis and you know the peril that she faces. Do you think that this is going to make, is there any cause for her to second guess the choices that she has made as we go forward with all of this? Absolutely not. I have always said that Fonnie Willis, D.A. Fonnie Willis, has uh, been called for a time such as this. Yeah. She's a very tough prosecutor. She knows the law. She follows it. And she applies facts that she's been given through investigations to that law. If she has the facts to go forward, she's going to move forward. And nobody is going to be able to intimidate her from doing so. I will say the flip side of this is her ability to weather this and all of these prosecutors' ability to hold a former president accountable is actually a reason to encourage other young people, whether they are women, women of color or not, to get involved in this career, given the stakes and the magnitude of the challenge. If, if victorious, it, it, it's deeply meaningful. Well, and actually, that's one of the things that's personally very satisfying for me. There was a time when I was the only African-American woman DA in Georgia, and now there are eight so you can see how things can progress as many others uh, step up and recognize their opportunity to serve. Well, we are so thrilled to have your wisdom and thoughts. And I will say generally positive mental attitude towards all of this. Gwen Keys, it's great to see you. Thank you for visiting us in New York City. Thank you. That is our show for this evening. Now it is time for the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. Lawrence, I know Lawrence, I know you have a very guest coming up this evening, and I will be eagerly watching the television to hear everything you discuss with her. Uh, Alex, I have two words for you. Cassidy Hutchinson. Yes. That's it. That's all you got to say. I got to go. I got, I, got, I got a lot of work to do here. Get into it. Okay. I'll be watching. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Thank Bye. you.